Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Really glad you're with us for the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. No good martinis for you today. Bad, bad, and crazy. We're actually going to start off with a very quick... uh, recap of our favorite teams uh, opening the NFL season, which is also not a good martini in any way. Uh, Jim, uh, your Jets lost to the Carolina Panthers. I believe it was 19-14. to And the Bears were in prime time. Certainly didn't look like they were ready for prime time. Lost to the LA Rams and their uh, fancy, relatively new stadium, 34-14, to I think. I don't really know for sure. I was writhing in agony for most of the first half and was in the ER with a kidney stone uh, when the game ended, but I think it was still better than watching the Bears. So uh, what's your assessment of how the season started? First of all, Greg, I'm really sorry to hear about uh, the kidney stone. My God, that sounds terrible. That's got to be like the second most painful thing you've experienced in the last 24 hours next to seeing Justin Fields on the bench when he's clearly a better quarterback. <laughs> You go like, ah, just, just put fields in. I'll feel better. Really? Andy Dalton, I can't take this anymore. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I can't wait for the NFL season to start. My understanding is yesterday was like the fourth week of preseason. Is that how it works? You know, <laughs> for us, it was. Yeah. Cause it certainly didn't look like the professionals playing. Yeah. No, it's yeah. look, there's nothing like being a Jets fan, new era, new coach, new young quarterback. Everything's looking great. And you're down 16, nothing in the, in the uh, third quarter with 80 yards of offense to show for it. It's, it's a new season and I'm already, I'm, you know, already in mid season form of depression. Well, the good news for the Bears is that everyone else in the division lost yesterday, and uh, except for Miami, because they played another division team, uh, everybody else in your division lost yesterday, too. So, uh, you know. Yeah, but we're not even competing for the title. That's (laughs) All I wanted to see was improvement, and that low bar could not be met, Greg. Oh, man. Well, apparently the same is true for our uh, actual content on the Three Martini Lunch, since we have no good martinis, but we've got a uh, uh, two bads and a crazy, and uh, the first bad is even a double-barreled bad martini. So that's how much bad news we've got today, and they both relate to Afghanistan. Uh, the first part of this double-barreled martini really came up from the New York Times. Uh, kudos to them on Friday after we recorded. And it uh, relates to that supposed awesome drone strike we had against ISIS-K. Yeah, not so awesome. It was the last known missile fired by the United States in its 20-year war in Afghanistan, and the military called it a righteous strike, a drone attack after hours of surveillance on August 29th against a vehicle that American officials thought contained an ISIS bomb and posed an imminent threat to troops at Kabul's airport. But a New York Times investigation of video evidence, along with interviews with more than a dozen of the driver's co-workers and family members in Kabul, raises doubt about the U.S. version of events, including whether explosives were present in the vehicle, whether the driver had a connection to ISIS, and whether there was a second explosion after the missile struck the car. Military officials said they did not know the identity of the car's driver when the drone fired, but deemed him suspicious because of how they interpreted his activities that day, saying that he possibly visited an ISIS safe house and that at one point loaded what they thought could be explosives into a car. But the Times has uh, identified the driver as Zamari Ahmadi, a longtime worker for a U.S. aid group. The evidence, including extensive interviews with family members, co-workers, and witnesses, suggests that his travels that day actually involved transporting colleagues to and from work. And an analysis of video feeds showed that what the military may have seen was Mr. Ahmadi and a colleague loading canisters of water into his trunk to bring home to his family. And Jim, uh, you have also done excellent reporting in the last couple of days, pointing out that the State Department's basically giving up on Afghan allies. They've basically uh, stopped doing special immigrant visas, and they're uh, hoping, what I guess, the UN can help? 
Yeah, don't worry, the UN will save you, is not really the most reassuring message that the State Department could offer people on the ground. Um, it is uh, a notice that they're sending out to those who are inquiring about the special immigrant visa program. This is for all of our Afghan allies. The translators, the people who worked on bases, the people who uh, um, really stuck their neck out to help us during our mission in Afghanistan. I had a chance to talk to somebody who was with one of the uh, organizations of veterans who's trying to get them out, and they made the observation. It's kind of stuck with me, and this will be, you'll see this quote in an upcoming article. For the members of the military who were over there for, you know, usually pretty darn long deploy deployments, they were away from their families, and the Afghans they were working with kind of became part of their surrogate families during those long stretches. They really got to know them. They really saw them as friends. They saw them as partners. And oftentimes, they were often either under fire or in risky situations. They knew the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, and later on ISIS, all these groups were trying to kill them. So they really became brothers in arms, whether or not these uh, Afghans were, were carrying arms themselves. They were sticking their neck out. They were, you know embracing a certain amount of the necessary risk of the work that was being done. Uh, the message from the State Department is that they cannot process special immigration visas right now. Uh, they cannot provide consular services because they don't have an embassy anymore. And because of that, they can't have you come in to make an appointment. They can't do interviews. They can't do any of the, they can't give you the paperwork, which is really important. Um, it's really just, there's just nothing that can be done, but don't worry, quote, we are developing processing alternatives so we can continue to deliver this important service for the people of Afghanistan. It is, please stay on the line, your call is important to us, 13 days after all US troops left Afghanistan. This is what happens when you don't have an embassy. This is what happens when you don't have uh, any consulates or any other facilities on the ground, no staffers left on the ground who can do any of these things. At this point, if you don't have all your paperwork in order before the US uh, embassy closed up shop at the airport, you, you don't have the option. You're just gonna have to wait. And while they figure out some way to do this, with no sense of that. Yes, um, the other part of the message declared, quote, if you have concerns about your safety, you may contact the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees Protection Office and enlist their numbers and email addresses. Now, of course, the day they sent out this message, the UN Security Council Special Representative for Afghanistan, Deborah Lyons, said that her organization is having a hard time ensuring the safety of their own staff. So if the United Nations can't protect their own staff, they're probably being harassed by the Taliban, intimidated. No one's been killed yet. I, I guess there's that. But, uh, you know, that by that low bar, um, you know, there's, there's no reason to think the United Nations is in a is any, is any, uh, position to protect uh, refugees. So it is, you know, ludicrous buck passing. As for this um, strike on an innocent uh, humanitarian worker in Afghanistan, um, God, you know, if, if I say the words baby milk factory to you, Greg, <laughs> I'm sure you will instantly think back to Saddam Hussein and, and Hussein's regime in Iraq and how every U.S. strike on every military facility or legitimate target in Iraq was always, you know, the Hussein's regime always said it was a civilian target. It was innocent people. It was, you know, and look, we know war is war is hell. War is the fog of war. You end up uh, doing collateral damage to people you do not intend to target. That is just a, a fact of life about war. It is why war is so terrible and why it is, should be avoided whenever possible. But the, most of the time we're used to these kinds of regimes um, lying, basically. Basically saying, you know, oh no, we had military, or putting military targets very close to civilian targets, uh, putting civilians in military buildings, things like that. 
In this case, it appears just flat out, we misjudged, you know, our guys who are tar- in charge of the targeting misjudged and thought this was a tar- terrorist, didn't realize it was him just picking up water jugs or whatever it was. And I, I can't help but re- remember, Greg, the day before Biden had given his speech and he was so tough, right? He was gonna be talking about the attack on the Kabul International Airport. And we will not forgive. We will not forget. We will hunt you down and make you pay. Did that influence the decision making? I don't know. Uh, it's one of those things where it is an appalling last final note, an embarrassment to the country, um, hurting the people we're supposed to be helping. Uh, it is a shameful moment. And my guess is nobody in the administration will ever really um, not only face no consequences for it, but I don't think they'll uh, ever really answer any tough questions about this, Greg. Yeah, nobody certainly admitted it so far. So after that strike, Biden, remember, said, ISIS-K, we're not done with you yet. Apparently, we haven't started with them yet. Not done. Haven't started. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about uh, one ways to get rid of the stress of life. It's certainly not by following this administration and their policy on Afghanistan, but Theragun can definitely help ease those tensions. So don't let the stress of daily life weigh on your body. Whether you're an elite athlete or someone like me just trying to make it through the day tension-free, Theragun can help a lot. Theragun is the handheld percussive therapy device that releases your deepest muscle tension using a scientifically calibrated combination of depth, speed, and power and it's as quiet as an electric toothbrush. The Gen 4 Theragun just doesn't just feel good. It gets to the source of the pain by releasing tension. Using Theragun's signature percussive therapy, which goes 60% deeper than vibration alone. Whether you wanna treat your muscle tension from working out or heal an injury or just the stresses of everyday life, there is no substitute for the Theragun Gen 4. The OLED screen and design make you feel like you're holding something from the future. Just go to their site and check it out. And the Theragun app learns from your behaviors and suggests guided routines. Love, love, love the Theragun. You have those tight muscles, whether it's just stress from the long day or you've uh, overdone it. Uh, You feel like you're younger than you really are. And so you pulled some muscles uh, doing something uh, remotely athletic. And then the Theragun is there to help uh, ease those muscles and get them back into working shape. Uh, and, And like Jim just said, the app learns from your behaviors and suggests the guided routines. It really is fantastic. Theragun is trusted by 250 sports teams like Real Madrid and elite athletes like Paul George, DeAndre Hopkins, Maria Sharapova, hundreds of thousands of customers, and me. So try Theragun for 30 days, starting at only $199. Go to therabody.com slash martini right now and get your Gen 4 Theragun today. That's therabody.com slash martini. Therabody.com slash martini. All right, Jim, let's move to our second bad martini. And so, as you know, the Democrats are trying to not only pass, but rush their $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill before the uh, end of the month here. Bernie Sanders very upset with Joe Manchin for trying to knock it down by 50% or more. But uh, the talking point now, Jim, is that it's all paid for. Don't worry about this price tag. It's all paid for. It's not really all paid for. But uh, part of how they want to pay for it is nearly $3 trillion in tax increases to defray the cost of this monstrosity, all of which is going for their liberal left-wing wish list of uh, climate policy and everything else. But 
Here's what uh, Politico has to say about it. House Democrats want to raise the corporate tax to 26.5% as part of nearly $3 trillion in tax increases to defray the cost of their next big spending package while boosting the top rate for individuals to 39.6%. The Ways and Means Committee is also planning to call for a new 3% surtax on people making more than $5 million. Sources familiar with Chair Richard Neal's still unreleased plan say, as well as increasing the top capital gains rate to 28.8% from 23.8%. So he also wants to raise taxes on multinational corporations' overseas profits, tighten estate tax rules, meaning double taxation, and pare back deductions for some unincorporated businesses. But don't worry, they get into the minutiae as well. From what I'm hearing, they're really planning to jack up taxes on vaping, for example. So uh, pretty much anywhere they uh, can tax, they're probably going to try to. So uh, Jim, what do you make of uh, the Democrats (laughs) just uh, raising taxes wherever they see taxes here? Let's say, Greg, inflation's fixed, right? There's, there's no more worries about that. People just have tons of money that they're just, well, I got, I've got so much money right now because prices are so low. I'd love to give some more of it to the government. Um, it, it, is, look, it is axiomatic that if you elect Democrats, they at minimum attempt to raise taxes. If they do not, uh, and very often they succeed, saw it under Bill Clinton, saw it under Barack Obama, and obviously they want to do it under Joe Biden. Um, there's a little bit of good news from Joe Manchin. He sounds very skeptical about $3.5 trillion in new spending. And um, you notice Greg and I are very rarely putting him in the good martini that often because he, <laughs> he makes good sounding noises every week. But until this thing is, uh, uh, we've seen too many horror movies to see things come out of the coffin and come back from the dead and come back to haunt us or something like that. So until these giant spending proposals are actually dead, dead, we're not going to celebrate too much. Um, but yeah, it just shows that, they, you know, that for the, the democratic philosophy continues to see both America's taxpayers and America's businesses as just these giant, you know, Scrooge McDuck money bins full of money that they can just take as much as they need for whatever they want to do. And that's not an accurate case of it. It is completely out of touch with the uh, lived experience. It's very interesting when you talk, you know, you can find economists who will tell you well, some of this is supply chain issues. Inflation doesn't really look like a, we've now had like four or five consecutive months of don't worry, inflation is temporary. And right. I know it's just like this. Well, tell me how temporary, because I keep waiting, we keep waiting for the month where it doesn't happen and it keeps going on. But the second thing is like, if you, uh, the, the argument from the economists of, oh, this is much more supply chain issues. Um, ports in China have shut down. Apparently somebody tried to parallel park a tanker in the middle of the Suez Canal again, and there's stock, you know, twice in a year. I don't think these are accidents anymore. But anyway, like, oh, yeah, okay, maybe those are factors. In fact, I'd be, I'm almost certain those are factors. But if you ask people, how much are you paying for your groceries compared to a year ago? They know it. They've noticed it. This is not, you know, and they know if they're paying, you know, $3 and change for a gallon of gas compared to $2 and change for a gallon of gas. So the idea that Americans are clamoring for more taxes and to give more of their money to get is absolutely bizarre. Um, and it's a terrible time to do this. But if there's anything we've seen from this administration, it is a stubbornness to stick to whatever the original plan was, no matter what the outside circumstances or outside signals are telling them. And I don't know if you saw this yesterday, Jim, Bernie Sanders was on one of the Sunday morning shows. And he, of course, was excoriating Joe Manchin, saying it's got to be. No, it's got to be three and a half trillion dollars. And uh, and, he, and he basically is holding the infrastructure bill hostage. The Democrats are doing that, uh, saying it would be a real shame if we don't get either one of these bills. 
They've got the votes in the House to pass the infrastructure bill. We wish they wouldn't. Uh, there's a l- way too much garbage in there compared to what's actually being spent on real infrastructure. But like we said before, you know, if both bills end up dying, I can see that being a good martini. Uh, yeah, there we go. We wouldn't mind that. And also, by the way, the fact that so much of the first year of the of the Biden administration has been effectively eaten by this, effectively, you know, taken over by this really does, you know, and if they don't get this, you know, giant spending bill, first of all, if they only get 1.5 trillion, that does represent something of a victory from the 6 trillion number they were throwing around. And the second thing is that uh, if they actually get nothing, then I think you could actually see Democrats really, really get depressed, uh, really second guessing whether uh, Biden is the guy they thought he was. They basically elected him to be the anti-Trump. He himself doesn't have enormous, uh, uh, you know, uh, leadership abilities. He's certainly not the rhetorical equivalent of either of his uh, Democratic predecessors. And, uh, you know, that, that would be a win, but uh, we will have to wait and see. We're still a long ways away from that, I think. All right. Well, let's uh, talk about uh, ways to stay comfortable again, not just the Theragun, which of course is a fantastic product, but also with your brand new My Slippers. We talk all the time about the My Pillows. We've talked about the sheets, the towels, so many great products, but uh, there's also the great My Slippers. Wear them all the time. My Slippers took two years to develop to ensure they're the highest in quality and comfort. And now, right now, you can get 50% off the price of My Slippers with our promo code. My slippers are durable. You can wear them all day, indoors or outdoors. They're made from beautiful leather suede and of cozy faux fur linings and an indoor-outdoor sole. They're available in moccasin or slip-on style and available in a variety of colors. They also come with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a one-year limited warranty. But today I want to tell you about the three-tier cushioning system that these slippers offer. Layer one is the MyPillow patented fill. They took the MyPillow patented foam that you know and love from your pillow and create a solid layer to provide incredible comfort. Layer two is the comfort memory foam. Now this layer of comfort memory foam provides that micro comfort and support so you can wear these slippers all day. Layer three is the patented impact gel, which I did not know this, were made from US soybeans. And this impact gel is revolutionary in absorbing impact and relieving pressure. I love the My Slippers. I wear them around the house all the time. Like I said a couple of times last week, they're actually more comfortable than uh, not wearing shoes at all. So for a limited time, MyPillow is offering 50% off the new My Slippers. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener square. Enter the promo code MARTINI or call 800-874-0104. Now, while you're there, take advantage of the deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the Giza Dream bed sheets, the MyPillow mattress topper, and the MyPillow towel sets. You can only save 50% on the new My slippers though with our promo code martini call 800-874-0104 or visit mypillow.com today all right jim we were just talking on friday in our 9-11 reflections about uh whether america could see the unity we saw in the weeks after 9-11 if some horrific event were to befall our nation today and we were somewhat skeptical that that would be the case and now there's new polling that actually backs that up this is from scott rasmussen 57 percent of democrats believe supporters of donald trump are a serious threat to the nation uh, the rasmussen national survey found that 56 percent of those in president biden's party also consider the unvaccinated a serious threat 
That's a higher level of concern than Democrats express about the Taliban, 44%, China, 44%, or Russia, 37%. And uh, who, who do the Republicans see as the biggest threats? Taliban, 66%. The defund the police activists at 62%. And China at 58%, Jim. So I realize uh, opinions run high on vaccinations and so forth. And we talked a lot about that on Friday after Biden's crazy speech as well. But the idea that the unvaccinated are a bigger threat than terrorists and uh, communist China, some perspectives are really out of whack. Yeah, this isn't the focus of our crazy martini, but really conservatives, only 57% put China up there. <laughs> I, can I write any clearer? You know, anyway, um, <laughs> the, the observation, like, okay, I'm, I'm going to make two observations. The first is, there was a time when most Americans not only hadn't heard of the Taliban or heard much about them, we, we didn't care. They blew up the Buddha statues earlier in 2001. And it, it you know, there were some groups that, that you know, uh, offered denunciations and such, but there was certainly no talk of invading and fighting the Taliban. And we, we didn't care. We, we, there was a terrible, we know the world is full of terrible things. We know the world is full of human rights abuses. We know we have to prioritize. The problem is that when the, you know, barbaric, uh, seventh century misogynists who blow up statues, uh, historical statues, and oppress women in every conceivable way, throw acid into the faces of schoolgirls and stuff like that. When they start hosting terrorist groups that kill Americans, then we can't ignore them anymore. Then we can't say, you guys are on the far away. You're not dealing, you're not a problem for us directly. Somebody else has to solve that. Some, you know, these, the world, it's a big, scary world. There's nothing we can do about it. Um, we can't, because at that point, the problem has literally arrived on our doorstep and it has killed thousands of Americans. I, I, you, know, you don't hear um, the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka, right? We did not get a great deal of attention from Americans. They're a terrorist group, uh, PKK over in Turkey. Most Americans have very little familiarity. We, we are not at war with every terrorist group all around the globe. We are at war with terrorist groups that target Americans. And you'd like to think you know, if you and I, if somewhere out there, there's a, you know, four martini lunch with two left of center hosts who talked about uh, how terrible everything Republicans do uh, every day, you'd like to think that at least, you know, well, we all would agree that, you know, Americans should not be killed by terrorists. Doesn't mean you know, one of the things you're thinking about this, this moral clarity we had after 9-11, it didn't care, matter what you thought of the people who worked in the, the Twin Towers, didn't matter what you thought of firefighters, didn't matter what you thought of people who worked in the Pentagon, you didn't have to agree with everything they did to say, hey, they were the good ones that day. They, they did not deserve that. And the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, they're evil. Osama bin Laden, they're evil. Evil and good exist in this world. And even if we're a flawed country, and if we make mistakes, and of course we make mistakes, we're full of human beings. We don't need to be perfect. We just need to be better. And we need to stay, you know, we need to say, oh no, we are good, they are evil, and we will fight them so that they no longer can harm innocent people. That's, that's the war, of terror, war on terror in a nutshell. And it really does feel like over the past 20 years, that message, which is, you know, you think would be unifying. You think it would be one of those things where like, oh boy, left, right, center, you can all put aside your differences and say, no, no, we don't want to see dead Americans. And we want to see those who try to kill Americans. We want to see them either dead or captured. Drone strikes, FBI arrests, uh, whatever tools you got, friendly governments, arrest them, round them up, fine, whatever. Whatever it takes to get them off the battlefield and put them in a situation where they can't kill American citizens. That's where we want to go. And we don't have that anymore. And I think part of it is we just, you know, a little bit of a, um, we're victims of our own success in the sense that we don't spend a lot of time thinking about Islamist terrorist attacks in, in very much. I think you probably the last really major one 
you'd argue that was on American soil was the Pulse nightclub, San Bernardino a little bit before that. Um, you know, ever since we crushed the Islamic State, and yeah, there are still ISIS guys here and there around the world, but they're not the menace they once were. We don't think about it. Uh, by comparison, January 6th was just, you know, less than a year ago, though I know about you. It feels like it was three years ago. It feels like this has been a very long year. Um, and uh, the unvaccinated, well, that's front and center in people's minds right now. So people are really angry about that. But I think in the end, particularly if you look at a lot of political media institutions, you could write about international terrorist groups. You could write about how terrible some foreign group is. And it would, the traffic will be pretty good. But if you write about how terrible those people, how terrible red state Americans are, or in some cases, how terrible blue state Americans are, that's what people have an appetite for. They don't want to hear about somebody whose name they've never heard of. It's plotting to kill in the 1990s. Nobody cared about Osama bin Laden or very few people did. You know, it's one of those things where, no, no, tell me how my neighbor with the Trump flag, how evil he is, how he's a terrorist and taking time bomb by himself or the person down the street who's unvaccinated. Tell me how evil they are and how they represent the real threat. And they represent that. There are some people who have lost the ability to get angry at people beyond their borders. I guess they see it as ethnocentrist. I guess they fear that if they, they feel that too strongly, Maybe they're hearing the sirens call of nationalism or something that they always thought they were, they were better than. Look, they're globalists. They don't think they're cosmopolitan. They see themselves as citizens of the world. They find themselves probably having much more in common with somebody in London or Paris or some other exotic city around the world than they do with people who are in the redder parts of their own state. But that's where we are. And it's one of the, this poll is very revealing of it. I don't think another, God forbid we ever had another terror attack. I don't think we would unify. I think in the end, everything would end up getting run through that same red versus blue prism. And every single event that comes down the pike has to be squeezed and shaped into a way of saying the people who are the Americans who disagree with us politically, that they are the true villains, not the guys overseas who are actually trying to kill us. No. Hey, happy Monday, everybody. <laughs> and that's why pro-lifers are called the Taliban of the United States or whatever. But, uh, but they, Actually, though, they said at a, a recent pro-choice rally, Greg, they did not want that language used because they deemed it as ethnocentric and Islamophobic and offensive to Muslims. <laughs> I'm not making that up. In other words, you don't, don't call pro-lifers the Taliban because you could offend the Taliban. That is the mentality <laughs> at work here. Oh man, this, this world is getting harder and harder to parody, man. They're just doing it themselves. Jim, great to be with you today as always. I'd like to say things will look better next week for our teams. They probably won't, but nonetheless, hope springs eternal. See you then. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast if you don't already. Also, tell your friends about us. Uh, we're very grateful for your kind reviews and your five-star ratings. Get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Monday, and please join us again on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Joe Biden abandoned Americans and allies in Afghanistan, and now his decisions are spawning a genocide there. I'm Sarah Carter. On the latest Sarah Carter Show, I'll explain how the Biden administration is constantly lying to us and rolling over for the Taliban. I'll also bring on a good friend of mine to discuss how the terrorists that our government is expecting to behave are slaughtering the people of Panjshir. You won't hear this anywhere else. Subscribe to the Sarah Carter Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.